Thank you, Steve. I'd like to go ahead and, and uh, invite us to turn uh, to our text for this morning, which is Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Luke chapter 6, 1 through 11, that's on page 836, if you're following in the Bibles and the pews. We're continuing our summer sermon series, slowly, methodically making our way through the Gospel of Luke. Like I said last week, we're skipping around a little bit. We were in chapter 7 last week. We're back in chapter 6 this week. And we're going to have to do a bit more of that for various reasons, but we'll uh, keep making our way uh, through. So Luke chapter 6, 1 through 11. This is what Luke records for Christian believers back then, as well as for us today. He writes, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pluck some of the heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, ate what is lawful only for priests to eat and he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, and so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up or get up and stand here in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out, sorry, I skipped a verse. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? Then he looked around at them all and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, in his commentary on this passage, uh, N.T. Wright tells what I found to be an amusing story. Uh, He writes that a relative of his, traveling internationally with a group of friends, arrived at an airport once to find no customs officers on duty. As a joke, they climbed into the customs booths, put on the hats that they found there, and started inspecting other passengers' passports as if they themselves were the customs agents. Uh, Wright said he's always wondered what happened when the real agents eventually showed up, but his relative never told that part of the story. Well, in the same way, Wright says, that must have been how Jesus looked to some of his early critics. He must have looked like like a fake customs agent, like a fraud or an imposter. After all, Jesus held no public or religious office, at least not an official one. Uh, He wasn't a priest, a Pharisee, or a Sadducee, or a Levite. And from what we can tell, he didn't really have much formal training either. He wasn't a scribe, a teacher, or an expert in the law who had spent years and years in school learning everything that he knew. In fact, there was really nothing about Jesus that set him apart as all that special or as someone that others ought to listen to or pay attention to. And yet here he is in this passage, like Wright's relative, acting like he has authority, telling people what to do or not do and teaching them actually what is or isn't okay on the Sabbath. And so that begs the question, who exactly does Jesus think he is? 
That, says Wright, is the key question that Luke wants to ask here. It's not what is or isn't okay to do on the Sabbath. That's an important question too, uh, but that's probably a sermon for another day. As Luke continues telling us about Jesus in his gospel, though, unveiling him to us, revealing Jesus to us, that's really the question that he wants to get at. Who does Jesus think he is? That's the question Luke asks us in this passage. Truth be told, it's the question that, at least if we are here and if we claim to be Christian believers, it's the question that we should be asking ourselves all the time. And it's the question, yet again, that we're going to ask ourselves this morning. Now, in order to understand that question, who does Jesus think he is, and also how Luke is trying to answer that question here in this text, uh, we need to first talk a, a, at least a little bit about the first century Jewish understanding of the Sabbath. But you see, for many first century Jewish people, Sabbath keeping was one of the chief badges of their identity. It was part of their self-understanding and, who, and how they understood and knew who they were ethnically as Jewish people, but even more importantly than that, religiously as Jewish people. In other words, keeping the Sabbath along with circumcision, at least for men, and eating kosher for everyone was part of how the Jewish people knew that they were Jewish. It was part of how they understood and identified themselves. It was part of how they knew that they were God's chosen people. And that emphasis on Sabbath really picked up after the first temple was destroyed. Some of us probably know uh, a bit of the history. Um, but uh, God's Old Testament people, the Israelites, split into two different nations around 930 BC. Uh, the northern uh, nation of the Israelites was comprised of 10 of the original Israelite tribes, and then the southern kingdom of Judah uh, was made up of the remaining two. And after years of wickedness, revolt, and unfaithfulness towards God, that northern kingdom of Israel, or Samaria, was invaded, conquered, and then subsequently deported by the Assyrian Empire in 722 BC. Uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. They lasted a little bit longer, about 130 years, uh, before eventually the same thing happened when the Babylonians invaded and in 586 BC uh, destroyed the city of Jerusalem along with the temple there where the Jewish people worshiped God and then deported them as well, this time off to the city of Babylon. Now this is important to understand, but up until that point, the center, the focus, the locus, the most important part of Jewish identity and religion was that temple in Jerusalem. Everything in the Jewish understanding of God, of themselves, and of their nation came back to and centered on that temple. In fact, that's the way it is for some religious Jews still even today. It's not a widespread idea, but there are some corners of Judaism that believe that they actually need to rebuild the temple uh, still right now in Jerusalem. Uh, they believe that the temple needs to be reclaimed, rebuilt, and reinstituted. It's not likely to happen uh, since the third holiest site in Islam is there right now, the Dome of the Rock, but it's what some Jewish people hope for. And it, that demonstrates the importance and significance of the temple in Jewish understanding even still today. And yet suddenly, in 586 BC, all of that was gone. The Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, and with it, they destroyed the centerpiece of Jewish identity and faith. Just think about that for a moment. Okay, let, let that kind of sink in. Um, the center, most critical, most crucial, most important part of your identity and religious faith is suddenly gone just like that. 
I'm not sure that we understand fully as modern 21st century people today how traumatic that would have been for the Jewish people. Um, I think we maybe got a small taste of that during COVID, right? After all, we couldn't do many of the things that help us practice or live out our faith as Christians the way that we normally do. We couldn't meet together for worship. Um, We couldn't pray together. We couldn't have Bible studies together. In other words, we couldn't do some of the things that help us understand ourselves and identify as Christians. And yet if we're honest with ourselves, we probably knew that eventually things would go back to normal, right? Um, We knew eventually we'd be able to come back here to worship. We knew we'd be able to restart our programs and our ministries. Eventually we'd be able to get back together with our Bible studies and life groups and prayer groups. Eventually we'd be able to go back to doing things the way that we always had. But what if we didn't? What if we weren't sure things would go back to normal? In fact, what if we knew that they wouldn't? What if we knew that we weren't going to be able to go back, do what we used to, and and do things the way that we always have? What if we knew that that wasn't an option? And what if we didn't know if it would ever be an option again? Well, that's what it was like for the Jewish people when the temple was destroyed. It wasn't just that they couldn't go back to the temple, it was that the temple didn't even exist anymore. And even if it had, they still wouldn't have been able to go there because they were half the world away in exile in Babylon. And so what do you do with that? What do you do when the central part of who you are as a person, the central part of who you are as a nation, and the central part of your faith in God is suddenly taken away from you? Well, the answer is that you pivot you change, you find another part of who you are, another part of your identity, another part of your faith, and you make that central and crucial and most important. And for the the post-temple Jews in the first century and before, part of, of their faith that they used to replace the temple was the Sabbath. That became one of the things that they centered on and made crucial and important for their religious practice as Jewish people. That's how they worship God now. That's how they knew they were special. That's how they knew they belonged to God and were still his people even while they were off in Babylon. They practiced the Sabbath. That's why Sabbath keeping was so important to the Jewish people because when they kept the Sabbath, it indicated to them but also to everyone else who they really were. That's why the Sabbath was so important for Jewish people back then. And that's why it remains so important for the Jewish people of Jesus' day. Because keeping the Sabbath said something about the nature of their relationship with God. And yet here is Jesus, this upstart, no training, non-authority of a rabbi, trampling all over it. Who does he think he is? Well, the answer is he thinks he's the Lord of the Sabbath. That's actually what Jesus says here, right? In verses one and two, Luke writes, one Sabbath Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them together in their hands and then eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Uh, First of all, it's not actually clear that what the disciples were doing here was unlawful. Uh, while Exodus 34:21 commanded the Israelites to keep the Sabbath day holy, even during the harvest season, you weren't allowed to harvest on the Sabbath day, the disciples technically weren't harvesting here. That's because they weren't using a sickle. Uh, they were just plucking grain. 
And that might sound funny, but that's actually a distinction that the Old Testament law makes in Deuteronomy 23, verse 25. It seems that plucking grain like the disciples were doing here was okay, but if you suddenly started using a sickle, then it wasn't. This is why legalism is so much fun. Uh, Some of you grew up with this on the Sabbath, right? Well, you can put your feet in the pool, but you can't swim, right? That sort of stuff. Another sermon, another time. We'll get to it eventually. Either way, Jesus responds to the Pharisees here in verses three through five by saying, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is responding to the Pharisees' accusation here in two main ways. Uh, First, he tells a story about King David. Now, for those of us not overly familiar with Old Testament history, David is the most revered and respected political leader in all of Israelite history, okay? No one else, no other king, no other leader, no other judge ever rises to the level of David. He's the most admired. And in 1 Samuel 21, before he became king, David was on the run from the current king, Saul. He ends up meeting a priest named Ahimelech in a place called Nob and asking him for some bread. Ahimelech responds that he doesn't have any regular bread, but he does have some of the sacred bread of the presence or show bread that sits in the house of God before the face of the Lord. And he tells David that if he and his men are ritually pure, then he can give him some of that. The only problem is that that's not technically true. As detailed in Leviticus 24, verses 5 through 9, once that bread of the presence was no longer in the presence of the Lord, it was swapped out every week, the only people who were allowed to take it and eat it were the priests, people like Ahimelech and the others who served with him. And yet David takes it anyway, eats it, and gives some of it to his men. And Jesus' point in telling that story is clear. He's saying to the Pharisees, look, sometimes even good, faithful, upstanding Israelites, somebody as revered and respected as David, will do things that are technically against the law, but if they serve some greater purpose or good, then it's okay. The key is understanding when that's the case, when the law is in force or when some greater purpose might be more important than it. And what Jesus is saying is that in this case, his disciples eating a little snack as they make their way through a grain field serves a greater purpose than legalistically holding to a Sabbath rule that may or may not have even been in effect. Jesus doesn't really spell out what that greater purpose here might be. The commentators simply think that the disciples were hungry and they needed a little something to tide them them over. But his point is that the Sabbath isn't meant to be an inflexible rule that rules over every situation no matter the circumstances. Instead, it's our wisdom and discernment as we go about serving God that is actually meant to rule over and govern the Sabbath. Now, I doubt the Pharisees would have liked that. And I doubt even more that they would have liked what Jesus said next. And that's because the second response Jesus makes to the Pharisees goes even further. You see, not only does our wisdom and discernment rule over the Sabbath, but what Jesus says next is that he himself actually rules over the Sabbath. As he says in verse 5 here, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. First, just so we're clear, when Jesus uses that phrase, the Son of Man, he's referring to himself. 
Whenever he uses that phrase in the Gospels, he's talking about himself. So what Jesus is literally saying here is, I am Lord of the Sabbath. And that would have meant a few things. First, it would have meant that Jesus understood himself to be God. Uh, Truth be told, I'm always a little puzzled when people say things like, well, you know, Jesus never actually said that he was God. Uh, He never directly states it. He never comes right out and says, I am God. And that's technically true. Jesus never explicitly says in so few words, I am God. But he does say a lot of other things in the Gospels that leave you with no other real conclusion. That, that imply that he, that he sees himself and believes himself to be God, pretty strongly, in fact. And this is one of them. After all, who's, who's Lord of the Sabbath? Who's the one who instituted the Sabbath, established it, dreamed it up, and commanded it for the people of Israel in the Old Testament? God did, Right? All the way back in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, we read that God finished creating the heavens and the earth and all their vast array. Then he rested on the seventh day, blessed it, and made it holy, because on it he rested from the work of creating he had done. God is the Lord of the Sabbath. And yet Jesus says here that he is Lord of the Sabbath. And so it's pretty obvious what he's trying to imply here. He's implying that he Jesus is God. Because of that, though, and this is the second thing Jesus is getting at when he calls himself Lord of the Sabbath, because he's God, what he's saying here is that he has authority over the Sabbath. He has authority over what it is, authority over what it isn't, and authority over how it's supposed to be observed and followed. In fact, as one commentator I read put it, Jesus even had authority, if he felt it was necessary, to suspend the Sabbath. Suspend the Sabbath. What would that have looked like? Well, it actually looks like the next part of this story that Luke tells. That's because in verses 6 through 11 here, Luke writes, On another Sabbath, he, Jesus, went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. And so he said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. And so he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. That's what it means to suspend the Sabbath. It means to to set it aside, to put it on a shelf, to temporarily hit pause on the Sabbath in order to do some kind of work on it that leads to good, work that leads to life, work that leads to the kind of abundance and flourishing God intended in his world when he instituted the Sabbath in the first place. God didn't intend the Sabbath to be a heavy burden on humanity. He intended it to contribute to flourishing and goodness. And what Jesus is saying here is there are times where you have to suspend it to achieve that flourishing and goodness. Mercy work or mercy jobs, we call them, right? I actually used to have one of those. When I was in high school, one of the jobs that I had was I worked in the kitchen of a local retirement home. And although I grew up in a pretty strict Sabbatarian community where there were very few things that were allowed on Sunday and a whole lot that weren't, 
I was still allowed to go to my job at that retirement home. Because even in my community where the Sabbath was held in high regard, it was understood that you could suspend the Sabbath for certain kinds of work that still needed to be done, like making sure that the residents of the local retirement home were able to have their meals. And Luke's point here, his reason in telling us these stories, his intent in writing them down and communicating them to us is to help us understand that Jesus is the one who gets to determine when that's appropriate, when that's okay, and what kind of work the Sabbath is worth suspending. In other words, this is one more way that Luke reveals to us how we ought to understand Jesus, what we ought to think of him, and who he, Jesus himself, thinks he is. Who does Jesus think he is? He thinks he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He thinks he's the one who gets to interpret the Sabbath, define it, and even if he wants, suspend it. In other words, he thinks he's the true center of Jewish identity the true center of Jewish faith, the true center of Jewish religion. In other words, he thinks he's God. Do we? Uh, To be honest, I've been struggling a bit with this sermon series. I don't say this for sympathy. That's not what I'm asking for. I don't want a bunch of complimentary emails or anything like that this week, okay? I'm not fishing for compliments. That's not why I bring this up. But I had a really hard time preaching last week. Just going to level with you. Um, doesn't happen often, but every once in a while a sermon comes along where I'm just really in my head. I'm really self-conscious. Um, and, and I can't focus on what I'm trying to say. In fact, as I'm preaching, I'm, I'm, I'm already thinking, this isn't working. No one's paying attention to this. This isn't resonating. Um, and I kind of beat myself up, and that was last week. It's only happened a few times here at Ivan Rest, but last week was one of them. And the whole time I was preaching, I just I couldn't stop thinking, is any of this... What's the point? Is it, is it uh, are people tracking with what I'm saying? We talked a lot about centurions, right? And how Jesus has authority uh, over all sorts of things that no one else has authority over. But it just, it wasn't working for me. It didn't feel like it connected. It didn't feel like it made a difference. It didn't feel like it helped anyone. And so I was kind of reflecting on that this past week. Why didn't I like that sermon? Why am I struggling a bit with this series? Why does it feel like it's falling flat? And then it clicked for me. There hasn't really been a lot of application in this series, has there? Uh, Each week I get up, I preach a text from Luke, and I try to help us understand what Luke wants us to know about Jesus, but it's all kind of theology. There's no real application. There's not a lot of go and do this stuff for our everyday lives in this series so far. And so last week I just felt like it wasn't making much of a difference. But then it hit me. That actually is the application. Luke, all he wants in this gospel, he just wants us to see Jesus. He just wants us to understand him. He wants us to know him. It's like a diamond, right? When you hold a diamond up to the light, what happens? It refracts the light. If you look at a diamond in the dark, you don't see much, but if you hold it up to the light, you start to see all these intricate details of it. And if you turn that diamond, you see other intricate details of it, and it reveals more and more of itself to you. This is why jewelry stores will put diamonds on a slowly turning table with a whole row of lights above them, so that as you look at it, you see the diamond in all its brilliance, all its beauty, all its glory. That's what Luke's gospel is. 
That's what he's doing. He's placed Jesus on this slowly turning table with a row of lights over him so that we can see all these different facets of him. And then what he does is he tells a story after story after story about Jesus from all these different angles so that we see him in different ways, catch glimpse after glimpse after glimpse of his beauty and see his brilliance and majesty in all its glory. That's the application here. Truth be told, Luke doesn't seem all that interested in telling us what to go out and do as a result of reading his gospel. There's a bit of that, there's just not much of it. Instead, what he seems most interested in doing is simply telling us about Jesus, showing him to us from different angles and helping us understand who he truly is. Because if we're gonna live as his people, as people who call ourselves by his name, then the simple fact is we need to know him. And that's what Luke wants. After all, that's the gospel, right? The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of salvation through him. It's the good news that he indeed is who Luke is telling us he is. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, God himself, the one who came to save life, not destroy it, including ours. That's our savior. That's our Lord. That's who Jesus is. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for showing us your Son. Thank you for showing us who you are in your Son. Thank you for even showing us who we really are in your son. And thank you for making a relationship with him and through him with you possible. Pray this all in his name, the name of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.